Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When the nation went to war in 1861, everyone expected a short, easy war with the enemy running away at the first shot. Or at least, that's what we've all read. In fact, says Professor Jason Phillips, antebellum Americans had a much more complicated range of ideas about the future, filled with visions of everything from apocalyptic destruction to eternal progress. As he describes in Looming Civil War, how 19th century Americans imagine the future. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road, not on the campus of East Carolina University, but in the town of Greenville, North Carolina, where ECU is located. Not speaking for ECU or anybody else, just myself, as always. I know my guest will do the same. It is a cool, breezy night, the last Wednesday of April 2019, as we gather to talk this evening. The spring semester is winding along toward its end. Already we are getting students registered for summer and fall classes, but uh, this is the the approach of the the hottest month of the year academically as 
final exams and semester projects come up. Also, your annual reports are due and all kinds of other deadlines approach it will be exciting as always and for the rest of the world it's the time for march madness everyone is watching college basketball i am too but i will say nothing about it tonight because it only brings bad results to the teams i talk about and i don't want to do that this evening so we'll we'll move on uh, it is uh, an act uh, ecu is not in the tournament nor are they in the second-rated tournament, the NIT, nor the third, nor even the fourth. Uh, there are actually other tournaments. Uh, they're at home doing nothing, but there's hope for next year. And uh, football has hope for next year with a new coach. Baseball is going swimmingly. The team is in the top 20 nationally. Just swept uh, University of Central Florida last weekend in a three-game three set here in Greenville. And I have just been enjoying the heck out of listening to East Carolina baseball on the radio, which you can do usually from the ECU website, Uh, partly because the team is good and partly because the play-by-play announcer is highly entertaining. He calls the game appropriately, but then he'll go on a a sidetrack the other day discussing some team whose uh, mascot is the Bisons. And he explained carefully that the plural of bison is bison, but the team name was actually bisons with an S at the end, and how this was contrary to the ideals of higher education, that they had a grammatical flaw in their team name, and went on at some length about this, and it turned into a contest among listeners to send in what you call a group of bisons, or a bison, uh, or a group of any animals, what the plural would be, or the group name would be. Meanwhile, ECU was beating Atara out of their opponent, uh, so it was just a pleasant thing to listen to. Uh, if you're listening to this, you're saying, stop talking baseball, and let's get to the Civil War, which we will momentarily. Uh, I'll remind you first that we will do so again next week at this time, uh, on April 3rd, when Ryan Quint joins us to discuss the Battle of Monocacy that he has written about. On the 10th, Susanna Earle will be here to discuss her book on Hood's Texas Brigade, a a model of a new style unit history. On the 17th of April, Michael Schaefer gives us uh, a memoir he's edited of a Virginia soldier called In Memory of Self and Comrades, and we'll round out the month of April with Brad Gottfried returning to the show uh, in his uh, discussion and, and short Uh, writing about Point Lookout, the prison camp in Maryland. All of those guests, except uh, the first one, Mr. Quint, have been on the show before, and that seems to happen more and more. Uh, We've been doing this now, uh, meeting together on Wednesday nights. used to be Friday nights, if you remember, Friday afternoons, rather, many years ago. But we've been uh, talking and listening together now for 15 years, uh, hard to believe. So there are a lot of uh, historians and uh, other people in the Civil War community who've done something worth talking about on the show, and they've been on more than once. Our guest tonight, for example, has been on before. In uh, summer of 2019, in June, at the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg, which I hope you get a chance to attend, I'll be there talking with a lot of people, tonight's guest among them. Uh, and many others, uh, future and past guests on the show, uh, reflecting the, the idea of a Civil War community, that the same people 
uh, show up at these events, give talks, uh, write books, appear on Civil War Talk Radio. And at the same time, there are always new ones as well. I keep a stack of books on my desk that have been sent to me by authors or publishers with the suggestion this might be a good future show topic. And I, right now, the um, the stack of proposed books is approaching uh, code violation status. It's It's getting really tall. And so many of them are really good books, and yet we've already filled up almost the entire fall 2019 schedule. I'm, I'm glad to say that, but also maybe for the first time finding that the number of really good, interesting new books is outstripping uh, the number of shows we have to do. But uh, that that's a good problem to have, and I, I, I know you'll join me in, in being glad we have so many interesting things to talk about. I will be talking about what I hope are interesting things uh, on April 4th at Petersburg, Virginia, at the Pamplin Park uh, Education Center within Pamplin Park, the Civil War Soldier Museum there. If you've never been to Pamplin Park in Petersburg, you absolutely need to make that uh, something on your list to do. If you can do it on April 4th in the evening, I'll be there talking to the Petersburg Civil War Roundtable. I'll be at the Museum of History in Raleigh, North Carolina on May 13th, also talking to Civil War Roundtable, different topics. So come to both of them and we'll we'll chat two times. Uh, so lots of things going on. But let's talk tonight about uh, not the future as we see it, but the future as it was seen by Americans before the Civil War. How did they anticipate what was going to happen? That's the subject of the book Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagined the Future. Its author is a returning friend of the show, uh, Jason Phillips. Jason, are you there? I'm here, Jerry. How are you? Good. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. And uh, I see you're on the list for Civil War Institute this summer, so we'll get to uh, chat some more there. But uh, tonight I'm just really looking forward, uh, filled with uh, both expectation and anticipation uh, for our discussion. (laughs) Those words uh, to our listeners sound like synonyms, but having read your book, I now understand that they had very different meanings in the 19th century. And indeed, indeed, let me just say as a preface that this book is, uh, uh, I I want to choose just the right word, challenging is not quite right because it has almost a negative connotation, Uh, stimulating, provocative, uh, unusual. It's it's not a standard history. It's not quite an intellectual history. It, It touches on material culture, sensory history. Every technique that's showed up on this program in the last five years uh, makes an appearance in this book. Uh, so let me start with the overall question. How did you conceive of this whole con- this idea for a book? Well, I, I think as you opened your show um, with the, the common notion that at the beginning of the Civil War, all Americans expected a short, romantic, glorious 90-day fun and frolic affair. Um, I started there. I, I honestly, I think I read that sentence one too many times in, in a history book and, and just kind of stopped and thought to myself, well, who's actually studied 
hundreds and thousands of people's letters and diaries and scoured newspapers and, and looked through sermons and political speeches and kind of, you know, considered it from the vantage point of people at the beginning of the war to either confirm or deny this long-held belief that that everyone thought it would be um, an easy affair, um, something beneficial for the country. So I started with that question and then um, very quickly realized that Americans back then were as complicated as Americans are today and that people had very different views of the future and what the nation was getting into. And once I began to collect um, material from a host of, of, of different sorts of Americans from all over the country, I recognized that I didn't really have a plan for explaining and interpreting all of the, all of this evidence that I'd collected. And, and so I had to kind of come up with a, a new way of, of studying this. And as, as you just mentioned, I, I kind of uh, cobbled together a, a number of recent um, contributions to the field and, and to the discipline in terms of sensory history, history of emotions, um, memory studies, to try and come up with a way of studying the history of the future. Well, let's maybe start by putting a definition on the table. The book is called Looming Civil War. And mm-hmm. uh, what, one thing throughout this book is you clearly don't choose words lightly or randomly. Uh, what does looming mean in a 19th century context? So looming in the 19th century is pretty much a nautical term. Uh, a, lo- a looming event is a superior mirage. It is, it is a, a moment when uh, there, the atmospheric conditions are just right for the uh, air to refract light beams and basically lift a, an image into uh, the stratosphere, into, in, into the sky. And this often happens at sea where, uh, where the conditions on the, on the surface uh, create this effect. And basically you're looking at something that is looming larger than it is in reality. And, and it's actually up in the sky. So this was the beginning of the seafaring legend of the Flying Dutchman, you know, the, the ship that's mm-hmm. sailing across the sky is uh, a part of the phenomenon looming. Um, I started with that uh, idea because looming occurs after the Harper's Ferry raid when John Brown is uh, in jail in, in Charlestown, Virginia. Uh, there are a lot of concerns and fears among Virginians that there would be a second attack, perhaps uh, northern abolitionists uh, who had supported John, uh, John Brown and his followers were going to try to uh, free him from jail before his execution, before his trial was even finished. And, and so uh, nerves were, were frayed. Virginians were, were tensing for another attack. And one night, uh, these atmospheric conditions were just right for, for a looming phenomenon. And that's what happened. In this case, there were sparks from chimneys in the town that were enlarged and, and lifted up into the sky. And they looked like flares or rockets, signal, signaling rockets. 
that the militia assumed were signs that these abolitionist forces in the surrounding mountains were coordinating a, a midnight assault on the town. And, and when this happened, um, the, the people in Charlestown and, and Harpers Ferry panicked, and, and they thought for sure that there was going to be a second attack. Um, and so that's how, that, that's how I kind of framed the event, um, the, the, the opening of the book. I, I talk about this taking place in Harpers Ferry and then kind of explain what, what looming meant. So it, it's, in this case, a literal illusion, but one that, that fills people with, with fear, with vision. Uh, and and you, you take the story back uh, well before that, after the introdu- introductory bit at Harper's Ferry, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson's famous uh, image of the fire bell in the night. Uh, going right. back to 1820s, indeed, you you talk about the 1820s, the Missouri Compromise, and the West. Uh, at the start of the book, the the West is is where it's all happening. So, uh, let me suggest this: let's take uh, a, a short break. What I want to come back and start with, though, is, is tying together John Brown and and the West, and and where we first see Americans really. Uh, uh, starting to, to, to picture a, a major war taking place in their future. And so we'll come back with that question uh, with our guest, Jason Phillips. He's the author of Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagined the Future. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jason Phillips, author of Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagined the Future. The story begins, although this is not a linear story, uh, indeed time itself has multiple definitions in this book, uh, but at least the early chapters uh, t- take us out west to Kansas. So why do we start there? Well, we start there for a couple of reasons, but I guess the, the first is that Americans think about the West as the future, um, and they understand history and American history in particular as a westward march through time. And so for Northerners and Southerners who uh, imagine uh, the future of the country being in their image, the battle for the West is, is, is freighted with additional meaning. It's not just a question of whether uh, freedom or slavery is going to be enshrined in a particular territory, but uh, the direction of Western civilization is at stake in places like Kansas in the 1850s. And you describe there uh, people like John Brown, uh, his his actions in particular, in particular the skirmish at uh, Blackjack, which we'll come back to in a, in a moment. Mm-hmm. One of the uh, one of the overarching themes throughout the book is this idea of, uh, of course, looking toward the future. That that's that's in the title. But looking forward to it in in different ways, and as I, I said uh, when we first started talking uh, about the difference between expectation and anticipation, uh, those words that we use today uh, almost synonymously mean quite different things in this era, and that that runs through the whole book as we see different people having these different approaches. So, what what's the difference between expectation and anticipation? So I think the easiest way to explain it is that uh, 19th century Americans, uh, like every American I've talked to (laughs) about this today, uh, they imagined that the future was ahead of them. Uh, In space, they imagined it in front of them. Um, People who anticipated the future in the 19th century imagined that that future in front of them was open and empty and they travel into the future and forge the future and fashion themselves in the process. So, so the, the anticipators are people who imagine that humanity makes history, they believe in free will, um, and they feel empowered to make history, especially during moments of great crisis, like the, the sectional crisis and the Civil War. 
That's a very modern idea about time, and and it's born in the Enlightenment and and in some of the uh, strains of the Second uh, Great Awakening. The older way of viewing time uh, is expectation, and in this point of view, the future is still in front, um, but instead of traveling through time, uh, these Americans imagined that time passed through them that the, the future was already predetermined uh, by impersonal forces, uh, whether it be God uh, or impersonal forces, large structures that are beyond human control. Uh, these people believed in providence. They believed in fate. And, and they hoped that the, uh, that the future that arrived would be beneficial, um, but they didn't feel particularly empowered. They didn't feel that uh, history was something that was in the hands of particular individuals or groups. So that's the, that's the gist of it in terms of the two different ways of looking at time uh, and the future in the 19th century. And when you put it that way, it, it makes clear uh, for you know listeners who've read much about Abraham Lincoln, he certainly fits in the latter category uh, as somebody who talked frequently about uh, Providence, who mm-hmm. confessed, uh, I have not controlled events, events have controlled me. Uh, and yet, as you point in the book, uh, through his actions, he does more to direct the future than almost any other individual. So one might have one view of the future, but it doesn't necessarily limit how one behaves. Right. And, and I, I think um, Lincoln is a perfect example, too, of someone who uh, has a certain uh, temperament when it, when it comes to time in the future. If you, if you look at Lincoln's writings th- throughout his life, he expresses this kind of expectant point of view. Um, not everyone's like that. Some people uh, are avid anticipators their whole lives, and, and other folks kind of switch back and forth depending on, on circumstances. Um, but yes, he, he, he always seemed to think that way, and yet, you know, as you point out, um, he was uh, someone whose actions certainly had an impact on the war more than the average American. Um, and he certainly believed in things like free labor ideology, the race of life, um, uh, that, that America was a, uh, a, a meritocracy <laughs> mm-hmm. that um, suggests that, that he, he wanted to believe in an open future, but perhaps uh, had, for whatever other reasons, uh, his family background, his, his family's religious backgrounds, um, a, a different, more expectant point of view. I mean, that's one of the things that's hardest to convey to undergraduates in the first half of the American survey, how the the Puritans could have such a uh, predestination, uh, a a concept of predestination that that fixed their eternal fate for all time, nothing they could do about it, and yet they worked Mm -hmm. extremely hard, uh, whereas the typical sophomore, when told nothing doesn't matter what you do, grade's going to be the same, they would kick back and stop working. Uh, but Lincoln and, and his, his uh, uh, you know, the, the Puritan forebears uh, did just the opposite. They worked all the harder because of that. Uh, what changes in American history to, to bring about this new view? Uh, you mentioned the Enlightenment uh, 
but that's that's taking us back to 18th century. Are there other changes in the 19th century that cause more Americans to see the future as something they can fashion? Yeah, I, I think a couple of changes definitely affect things. Um, technology changes things. Um, mm-hmm. if, if you look at the railroad, for instance, I think the railroad is the first time that Americans uh, experience time travel, where, where they, they feel like they're traveling through time. If you read some of the, the early accounts of people who travel by train for the first time, um, they talk about um, how disorienting it is. Um, how the how the rush and speed of of traveling through time uh, on a train, even I mean, for us it sounds comical. It's like, well, you're going probably 15 or 20 miles an hour, but uh, for them, in terms of space and time, this was a radical departure from from the norm. And and so I think that that created this notion that that the future is in front, that you're that you travel through time. Another invention of the era, the telegraph, also mm-hmm. gave people a sense. That the that the future was something that that humanity would have uh, a certain amount of control over. Um, there was uh, the president of Amherst College, a man named Edward Hitchcock, had this theory uh, in Antebellum America uh, called the Universal Telegraph, and he believed that that every action and every thought that a human being uh, committed was something that was eternal, that you, it, it would stir molecules in the universe forever, um, and somebody or something out there in the cosmos would be able to discern what that message meant, what, what, what was going on in the future forever, the way that you could read a, a telegraph uh, across the wires, and he even thought that that explained some things for him because he was he was a Christian. Hitchcock thought, well, that explains uh, the final judgment because the the material evidence for every good thought or bad thought that we have is out there in the universe, and and on Judgment Day, God is going to bring it forth uh, and and sh- and show us our our uh, fate. Um, the other thing that 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 brought up for him was this idea that um, in the future, if a mathematician could figure out the, uh, the arrangement of molecules and, and, and some sort of equation for tracing them back to their origin, then historians could know anything about the past. We could know what Julius Caesar's last thought was before he was assassinated. That is a, a terrifying prospect that uh, each of our all of our private thoughts could be revealed in that way. Uh, but it, but very interesting. You you point out it's similar in one sense to the the, the modern chaos theory, the the butterfly effect argument that every mm-hmm. tiny event has has creates ripples that cause big things later. But but Hitchcock is saying these are not just random events; these are are intentional thoughts that are being. Uh, that are changing the future. And, and yes, that's, that's and, and, and it's something that Theodore Parker believed, too. You know, Parker, mm-hmm. the, the abolitionist uh, minister who supported John Brown's raid, one of the Secret Six, um, you know, he famously said, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, that the, the moral arc of the universe bends mm-hmm. toward justice. And that's exactly what he was talking about. He was saying that our good thoughts, as well as our good deeds, uh, will bend and reform the material cosmos and 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 bend it towards justice in the end. 
Now, all the people we're talking about so far, John Brown, Theodore Parker, Hitchcock, these are all Northerners, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And mm-hmm. at one point, you stress that the the stereotype of a North obsessed with technology and speed, uh, contrasting with a pre-modern South where everything is slow, uh, where, where there's no vision of the modern world, uh, you suggest that's not accurate, that there is the South, there are many Southerners who are modern in a very different way, but they are also future-oriented. Yes, I, I do think so. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like when when anticipation uh, kind of replaces expectation as the, the dominant, most popular temporality, uh, <laughs> it kind of just peaks during the antebellum era. And, and it helps northern reformers become more popular. It helps mm-hmm. western boosters. Um, who imagine they're shaping the future. And unfortunately, it also helps Southern nationalists who see an open future uh, that can be a radical departure uh, from the past. And so uh, I studied people like Edmund Ruffin and and other uh, fire eaters from the South um, and recognized that they saw themselves as modern men, men uh, of the future, who would be the, the future founders of a great nation. Well, you have a chapter about prophecy where you talk about Ruffin as a, a prophet, not in a biblical sense, able to tell what that expected future is that, that, we're, that is coming our way, but as a prophet who's going to shape the future. Uh, and, and did he wrote a book about uh, sort of science fiction account of the Civil War before it even happened? Yes, he, he, he wrote a book uh, in 1860, it was published, and, and it's titled Anticipations of the Future, and Ruffin essentially writes a history of the Civil War before it happens. Um, some of this, uh, some of his forecasting is uh, eerily um, accurate. He talks about the Civil War uh, erupting at Fort Sumter. Um, he has a chapter about... Um, race riots and and uh draft riots in new york city um there there are many things in here that um are pure fantasy that that are not true um ruffin anticipated that uh black southerners uh enslaved americans would would remain loyal to the confederacy and 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 be sort of a a deciding factor in 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 creating this slaveholding republic that they preferred slavery to freedom uh, was something that he believed um, and, and, of course, found out uh, was not the case when his own slaves left him. But, yes, he, he, he wrote this book um, shortly after he watched John Brown die, um, and he, he read uh, a different book about the future uh, by uh, a novelist named John B. Jones, um, who wrote a, a book called Wild Southern Scenes, um, that pr- also predicted a civil war looming on the horizon and, and was written in 1859. So uh, that brings us back to John Brown. I mentioned uh, the skirmish at Blackjack at the start of our segment. In that skirmish, he defeats some secession, well, not secessionists yet, fire eaters, pro-slavery men, uh, in, including one named Pate from Virginia. And in the process, he takes away uh, Pate's Bowie knife, what is a Bowie knife, and why is it so important? 
So a Bowie knife is a large knife uh, meant for personal defense. Um, the first Bowie knife uh, was created by Resin Bowie for Jim Bowie, uh, and uh, he said it was a hunting knife. It was sort of patterned after uh, popular hunting knives in England at the time. Um, this is a very large blade. Um, beyond that, uh, and the fact that it's it's meant for murder, there's really not much <laughs> that distinguishes these knives. You know, some of them are two-edged, some of them are one, some of them have guards on them, some of them don't. Uh, some of them are even sort of a switchblade. So uh, they, they come in all shapes and sizes, but they're uh, but they're meant to be weapons of self-defense, and and they became popular, particularly in the antebellum South. Um, at a time when there weren't other weapons as useful uh, in a melee as a big knife. Um, we're talking about a time when swords are out of fashion uh, after you know the 18th century, particularly the American and the French revolutions. Carrying a sword around was considered a sign of aristocracy, and so it became socially uh, taboo to do that. Um, but there were really no good replacements for a sword uh, in terms of self-defense. Um, you could carry a, a brace of pistols, but at this point, they're very unreliable. Um, you could carry a sword cane, you know, a, a flimsy blade concealed inside of a cane, um, but that, that wouldn't prove very helpful either. Um, and so these knives became very popular in uh, violent places like the Southwest, um, and they, they came to sort of embody Southern politics. Uh, it got to a point where, where Southern politicians were going to Congress and, and carrying their Bowie knives with them. In, in an open fashion, no less. We're going to come back and talk more about this and about uh, uh, Pate's knife in particular. When we come back, we're talking tonight with Jason Phillips, author of Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagine the Future. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Jason Phillips, author of Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagine the Future. We ended our last segment talking about the Bowie knife, the big Uh, frightening-looking hand weapon that was carried by many Southern politicians in the years before the Civil War. One of them was Henry Clay Pate, who made his way out to Kansas, got in a skirmish at uh, Black Jack in in the Kansas Plain with John Brown and his followers. And in the aftermath, uh, Pate surrendered his men to Brown. Brown took Pate's knife. In some ways, Jason... uh, if there's a main character in your book, I would say it's it's Pate's Bowie knife. Uh, it, it comes up uh, again and again in the most unexpected places. Uh, where does it next pop up af- after Brown takes it uh, away from Kansas? So shortly after uh, Brown takes this knife from Pate, he carries the knife with him when he travels on fundraising tours through New England. So uh, at this point, he's trying to, to raise some resources for uh, the free state cause in Kansas. Um, he's sort of making the circuit um, uh, in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And, and what, what he's doing is he's, he's giving audiences a sensational speech about um, the privations that his men have endured, um, the, the aggressions of Southerners out West, and to sort of prove his point and, and add sort of a flourishing finish to his lecture, he will whip the, the Bowie knife out of his boot. So he's kind of concealed mm. it from the audience until the end, and, and, and he'll, he'll show it to everyone and say, this is you know, this is proof that I've disarmed the Southerner uh, of his manhood, of his of his you know characteristic weapon, and 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 this kind of also proves his aggressive posture out west. That you know this is this is the weapon of conquest for for Southerners. So so that's the next place it appears. And when he's out in in Connecticut giving one of these giving one of these talks, um, he happens to meet a bladesmith actually a pretty famous one, Charles Blair, who uh, is admiring the blade in uh, a pharmacy and, and, um, and Brown says, well, you know, I'm wondering if you could, if you could use this blade as a model and, and put it on uh, the shafts of some uh, hoe handles and, and perhaps basically create sort of a primitive pike. 
and and Blair says, well, why on earth would you would you want that? Um, and he says, well, I, I think that you know citizens, free citizens out on the prairie in Kansas, they could they could use this to, to defend themselves from border ruffians and from wild animals. Uh, you know, every every cabin needs a needs a pike. And Blair doesn't want to do this, um, and so uh, he gives him a pretty stiff price. He says, "Well, I'll, you know, I'll do it for a dollar a pike." And and Brown, though he doesn't have the money, a, a, agrees to the deal. And so they they start to manufacture these pikes modeled after the Bowie knife. And th- this brings up this whole idea of, of weaponry as symbolic of, of, of policy and, and, and politics and character, where the southern weapon is uh, you know, aggressive and, and open. The Kansas settlers are defending themselves with Beecher's Bibles, with you know, rifles packed in boxes with different labeling, which to the southerners is pure hypocrisy, to the northerners it's use of superior technology and capitalism to get your way. Uh, So many interesting observations you make in this book uh, like that. Everybody listening to the show knows Pikes and John Brown. Uh, The story is not going to end here. Uh, So... Right. No, it doesn't. Um, but it, it does take an unexpected hiatus. There's a pause here because all of this mm-hmm. is happening in 1857. And then there's a financial panic that ruins Brown's fundraising tour. And he, he doesn't collect enough money to, to pay Charles Blair for these weapons. And so Blair uh, abandons the project. He's like, I'm not, if I'm not getting paid, I'm, I'm not going to create these weapons. And so for a couple of years, uh, they're unfinished. Um, and Brown shows up unexpected in, in 1859 and says, um, where are my pikes? And, and Blair says, well, I, I didn't finish them. You stopped, you stopped paying me. So I thought our contract was void. And, and Brown says, well, I, you know, I think I've got the money now. And Blair says, well, what would you need them for? Kansas is already settled. It's a, it's a free state. And Brown just kind of cagedly says, well, you know, I think I could find some use for them if they were finished. Uh, Blair says, well, I'm too busy now, but I'll, I'll see if I can find someone else in the area, some other blacksmith to finish the job for you. And, and he does. And, and these uh, weapons are, of course, shipped to Maryland and then um, some of them end up at Harper's Ferry. So they become symbolic. Uh, you point out there's a a human desire to collect souvenirs, and we see this, uh, soldiers on battlefields do this. Uh, some of Brown's pikes end up in various places. Edmund Ruffin gets hold of one. Uh, the threads just keep tying together in this book in curious ways. Um, rather than explain the ultimate fate of Pate's knife, uh, let's not uh, spoil the ending and, and let uh, listeners buy a copy of the book, uh, which they ought to do anyway, uh, to find it. But let me ask you the, the big question that brings us right back to where we started. If the myth that most Americans expected a short war, they were naive, they were enthusiastic, they had no idea what they were getting into, uh, that's the myth that we've we've read. You you say it's in uh, Ken Burns, it's in James McPherson, it's in Shelby Foote, it's in uh, the books that many people start their Civil War reading with. Where did the myth come from? If it's not, as you say, supported by the actual evidence when you actually read the letters, the newspapers, the journals of, of people at the time. 
Well, it certainly uh, does appear uh, in 1861. Uh, there were some people who anticipated that the war would be brief, um, that they would win the war easily. Um, there was a lot of eagerness at the beginning of the war. Um, if, if you find it anywhere, you find the short war myth among the you know, eager recruits of the spring of, of 61, uh, men who worried that the war might end before they got a chance to taste battle themselves. Um, those people are anticipating an open future, and they're worried that other men are going to get to the battlefield first and make history before they get into the fray. Um, so there were some people who fought this way, um, but um, the short war myth becomes popularized after the war when Americans look back and they recognize that they didn't have as clear a view of the future as they thought they did. Um, so I think, you know, the short war myth in part is uh, an acknowledgement that they were overly confident that the future was knowable. Um, in, in the 19th century. Another reason why I think it becomes particularly popular with Civil War uh, Americans, people who live mm -hmm. the experience, is that the, the short war myth is, is a way of reconciling North and South. If, if neither side thought it was going to be a long, bloody war, then um, that's a way of kind of absolving guilt and recognizing that no one's really responsible for the, the terrible war that occurred. We, you know, neither side anticipated that it would happen. Um, so I think some of this gets wrapped up into Civil War memory. It's, it's like a memory of an anticipation that's actually false and helps to reconcile the nation. I think it's perpetuated in scholarship for a different reason, and, and hmm. that is when you can start your story with that level of, of innocence and, and naivete among all Americans, then it sets the stage for all of the, the, the momentous changes that the Civil War creates in America. If, if, you, if you, you were talking about your students earlier, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you look at the way the, the, the American history survey is taught, you know, it's usually divided around the Civil War era and the notion that America becomes uh, a modern nation because of the Civil War, that this is our coming of age story. Um, this is the moment where we change and, be, and become modern and sober and rational and realistic. Um, and so I think the short war myth for, for historians and professionals who should know better, um, they support it because it, it is a prop. It's a, it's a way to then talk about change over time in their own analysis. The, the problem with replacing a myth is that you can't, you can't really replace a myth with facts. You can only replace it with a better myth, uh, a more memorable one. Do, do you see... Um, and and this book, which I've found absolutely uh, intriguing and and interesting, and and every page brought some new approach, uh, but it's not subject to to a quick synthesis. You know, you and I have been talking forty five minutes, and we could talk two more hours and not cover everything in here. <laughs> uh, uh, another reason why people should read it for themselves. But is there a, a, a different way to think about the pre-war generation that is, would be as satisfying or as memorable as the, the innocent uh, short war myth gives us? 
Well, I think one other way to look at it, um, and of course, every every myth or, or plot line is going to simplify things, right? Right. One way to one way to look at it differently that might be a little bit more accurate for for the way antebellum Americans experience the war is to consider this this story instead of it being tragic because no one thought it would be long and bloody. It was tragic because many people did expect mm. the war would be long and bloody and it happened anyway and they couldn't control it and, and you talk about that uh, in the chapter on expectations that, that that many people see a war out of their control that just as the the expectational view of the future is that the future is already set that you're just just coming at you and there's nothing you can do about it um that's very much an out-of-control scenario. But even those who went in thinking they could direct it by 1863-64 are realizing this is – no human can direct this. Uh, so maybe, that, maybe yes. that's the way we go. I, 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 think it's, I think it's more accurate. Um, mm-hmm. I think it gives the people in the 19th century the, the complexity of real human beings. Um, I think it admits that, that – this was a divisive era where people thought differently about things. Um, and I, I think it accepts the fact that there were no easy answers to this conflict, this sectional conflict over slavery. Um, it was a complicated time, just as today is a complicated time. And people imagined all kinds of futures, and many of them felt powerless to affect any kind of significant change. And they worried that the, the future that was looming on the horizon was going to take away their husbands or their sons or, or destroy the fabric of their family as well as the nation. And at the same time, you show many families in terms of the, the civilians left behind, particularly mothers, uh, wives, sisters, uh, women, were also frequently anticipationists that they went and helped make the war what it was. They didn't simply sit back and you make the same argument about uh, people held in bondage. Some of them changed the narrative by what they did. Others waited for the day of Jubilee. It's a complex story, uh, but you bring a lot of different actors into it, not just uh, the traditional uh, stories of the soldiers and politicians and and yet another angle of this most intriguing book. so do you have another project underway? We have 30 seconds, so that's not time to do it justice, but uh, what, what's your next direction after this? Well, I've, I've got a couple of projects I'm working on. One thing I'm doing right now uh, in 30 seconds is I'm kind of introducing animal studies to the Civil War, and I'm hmm. studying hogs in particular. And I'm recognizing that how hogs lived and died in the 19th century was different, whether you were a northern hog or a southern hog, and that the the open range of the south, the commons in which hogs lived, had a profound effect on the way the war was fought, um, on on the hog population itself, which was decimated by the Civil War. Southern hogs don't uh, recover their antebellum population numbers until the 20th century. Um, so one thing I'm doing next is I'm, I'm moving over to animals and considering uh, sort of the material and environmental aspects of the war. Well, whenever someone says, don't you ever run out of ideas for the show, I, I just 
pause, say, no, uh, there's always something. <laughs> I, I, that's an angle I had not thought about much, and I really look forward to hearing your thoughts on it and uh, reading the book. Maybe we can talk this summer. But in the meantime, we are sadly out of time. Our guest tonight, Jason Phillips, the book Looming Civil War, How 19th Century Americans Imagine the Future. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jerry. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 